Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. I was 15 years old, and I was at church camp, which is a place that I I ended up at church camp every year when I was a teenager and quite a few years after that in student ministry. So I was used to going to church camp, but that summer of 1995 was different. That summer, God was working on getting my attention. And I was at a campground just about two hours north of here in southern Oklahoma uh, in August. And so you can imagine southern Oklahoma in August. You know what the environment and the climate was like at that time. But there on that Thursday night at the end of the week of church camp, we weren't thinking about the heat. There were 150 of us teenagers that were sitting outside listening to a sermon listening as the director of the camp was preaching a message to wrap up the camp week for us. And you have to know there's a lot of distractions available at church camp. There always are, but I was focused that night. That night, I was watching the stars and listening to the words of that sermon. And I don't remember anything that that sermon included now. And as a preacher, I've come to understand that that's typical. That's okay. No problem. I don't remember anything that preacher said, but I remember what I was feeling. That night I was feeling guilty. I was feeling unworthy. I was feeling broken. I was feeling as if I had let God down personally. And honestly, I felt scared. I felt frightened. For the first time in my young life, I felt deeply convicted that I, Brock Paul, was a sinner. And that night, I became convinced that my eternal soul was in danger. And I was a little panicked. I was a lot panicked. And I felt like I had to do something. You know, before that night, I wasn't accustomed to feeling scared in church settings. I I know this isn't everybody's story, but I grew up in church. It was always a safe place for me. It wasn't very many weeks after I was born that my parents had me at church, and I was in the cradle roll class long before I could walk or talk, and we were learning how to pat the Bible. And the teachers were singing songs to us like, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And then I got a little bit older and I started walking and talking and I started getting invited to go to Children's Bible Hour, which was the kids offering while my parents were in big church. And Children's Bible Hour was great because we played games and we made crafts and we listened to stories and we sang songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then a few more years passed And I aged out of going to children's Bible hour, which meant I started to have to go to big church with my parents. But then I could also go to activities later in the day with the youth group. And I started getting to go to summer camp with the youth group. And summer camp was great because we got to hike and swim and go canoeing and play sports and have campfires. And they would teach lessons. 
But the lessons at summer camp felt a lot more serious, a lot more intense than the lessons that we had in children's Bible hour. In fact, sometimes when the lesson would get particularly serious, I would look around and notice that some of the other kids that were there with me were crying because they were really taking it to heart. And we, we sang songs together and many of them were happy and upbeat, but some, some of those songs had a little bit different tone to them. One of those songs said, I don't know why Jesus loves me. I don't know why he cares. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. And that's what had me worried and worked up that night when I was 15 years old at summer camp in Southern Oklahoma. I was worried that my failures in my first 15 years of life had made God angry. And what's worse, I was afraid that if I didn't do something to remedy that situation, if I didn't start taking the right steps, if I didn't make the, take care of the right procedure from that point on, I was convinced God was going to stay angry at me. And so I waited until the camp director's sermon was over, and I remember praying silently while that was coming to a close. And after the sermon was over, I went and I found one of my best friends from the youth group, and I asked what he thought I should do, and he thought I should talk to somebody else besides him. So I went and found the youth minister, and I told him, explained to him what I'd been thinking, and after we talked and prayed together, I decided that I needed to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins so that God would save me instead of punishing me. And I got down into that camp swimming pool and some of my close friends from the youth group were standing on the pool deck as witnesses and my youth minister asked me these questions. Said, Brock, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins? And I'd believed that since I was in cradle roll class. But I said, yes. And he dunked me under the water. I knew I wanted to get into heaven. I knew I wanted to be saved from my sin, and I decided I'd better get baptized, mainly because I was afraid of what might happen if I didn't. And I was so glad, so glad that Jesus died on the cross so that there was a way for me to get God to stop being angry with me. I don't know the details of your faith story. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to you. I know some of you might tell me you don't have a faith story right now. But I wonder, I wonder how many of you have ever wrestled with that idea that maybe God is angry with you. I wonder how many of you have ever felt that intense feeling inside. You just couldn't push it away. That idea in your, that you got it in your mind that God is mad at you. It's a common thing throughout human history there is, it's always been common for people to assume that God or the gods are angry at us. You can look in ancient times, but you can also look in modern times, and you'll always find individuals and people groups who want to assume that every natural disaster, every disease, every series of unfortunate events is a sign that the gods are angry. But if you grew up in proximity to any Christians in North America 
there's a good chance that somewhere along the way, somewhere along life's journey, someone shared a narrative with you about how you too could be saved from the wrath of God. And somewhere along the course of that story, as they told you the narrative and the instructions of how you could prevent God's anger from ruining you, somewhere along that story, you heard the story about Jesus and his death on the cross. And the reason for that is important. The reason for that is because the cross and the crucifixion, they're a big deal in the Christian story. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament part of our Bible, indicated that the crucifixion is at the core of the Christian message. He said in Corinthians, he said, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And it's a stumbling block for some people. It's a stumbling block for Jews. And it's, it seems like foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, this message is, is the message of Christ. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God. For Paul, the cross and the crucifixion were of utmost importance. And he's not the only scripture writer who thought so. In fact, if you just look at the totality of the messages, the stories that are told in the gospel writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus' life, all of these writers felt like it was important to devote at least a quarter and up to a third of their accounts of Jesus' story to the moments surrounding his death. They wanted to tell us the facts. They wanted to tell us the details. They wanted to know, wanted us to know exactly how it happened. And they didn't offer a whole lot of commentary. They didn't tell us a whole lot about what it meant, but they wanted to prioritize telling us about the event of the crucifixion itself because the crucifixion, they knew, it's central to the Christian faith. It is the factor that makes the whole story, this whole story unique out of all of the world's narratives. This is the pinnacle event of Jesus' life. And in retrospect, the crucifixion explains and interprets the events prior to it in Jesus' life. But even though the crucifixion is right at the heart of our story, I want to tell you that most Christians, Christians for, for all of Christian history, Christians have had a hard time explaining why? Why the crucifixion matters so much? Christians have had a hard time for all of this church history explaining and articulating exactly what was happening and what was achieved by Jesus' death on the cross. Now, I'm not talking about the physical aspects. Physically, we, we understand the explanations for how Jesus died and what killed Jesus. We understand. Those, those descriptions are pretty clear. We understand how crucifixion works. We understand the stresses and the agonies that it inflicts on a body and a person's physical and mental well-being. But theologically, the story is bigger. Theologically, this story is multidimensional. It's almost impossible to state in a succinct statement everything that was happening in a spiritual sense when Jesus died in the manner that he died. Oh, you can search the New Testament. You can search from Matthew through Revelation and you'll find stories and symbols and metaphors and images and sermons and songs and poems that are all describing the effect of Jesus' death. But there's not a one of those that's able to fully express the totality 
of the event, the magnitude of what happened. All of those descriptions are looking at the crucifixion from one particular vantage point, and they're looking at it like a multifaceted diamond, and they're only telling you about one aspect of the story. And there's more than one aspect to look at. There's more than one way to understand how the cross works. And there's more than one way to understand how the end of Jesus's life makes new life possible for us. Which is why for the next few weeks together as we build in anticipation for Easter Sunday, we are going to take a journey looking at the spiritual meaning of the crucifixion. Our series together is called Greater Love, and we are going to be exploring some of the major themes and the effects of Jesus' death on the cross because the cross is crucial. It's essential to our story, but it means more than we have yet imagined together. The cross is a bigger story than we have yet to wrap our minds and our hearts around. And there's going to be parts of this journey that are going to open up new horizons for us. But from the get-go, I want us to be able to say with confidence and believe with confidence that in the final analysis, no matter how it's ever been described in the past, the crucifixion of Jesus is a demonstration and a revelation of the limitless love of God. The crucifixion of Jesus is a demonstration and a revelation of the limitless love of God. But my goal for today, my goal for this morning, is that as we kick off this series, I want to invite you on a journey of broadening your horizons, expanding your imagination to about what Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross. You need to know that when, Jesus, when, when theologians talk about this concept, when academics talk about the different spiritual aspects of the crucifixion event, they, talk, use, they use the word atonement. They talk about atonement themes. And atonement sounds like a really complicated Bible word, but it's really simple when you just break it down into its old English form, at-one-ment. And it's a word that was coined by William Tyndall. If you don't know that name, we have a lot to be grateful to William Tyndall about. William Tyndall was a Bible translator in the 16th century. Who He was the first person to ever translate the Bible into English. I mean, can you imagine how much of our spiritual growth we owe to the work of William Tyndall? And he, he died for this effort. But along the way, he coined the word atonement. And he used it to describe reconciliation in a relationship. He was talking about when two things that were initially separated or distanced or broken from each other, when they become repaired or reconciled, when two things become at one or at atonement at one with each other. And he was referring to this process of joining together what was previously separated. And the New Testament is consistently clear saying this is what is at stake. This is what's going on in the crucifixion. It's a reconciliation, an atonement of the relationship between God and humanity. But when we try to start explaining how that works or why that changes things or, or what that means, it gets complicated. And if you trace theological thinking in Western Europe and North America for the past 2,000 years, you find a couple of big themes that took precedence. For example, for the first 1,000 years of church history in the West, 
most Christians understood the work of Jesus on the cross as the payment of a ransom. Okay, now think about how many movies you've seen where somebody was being held for ransom and you know what was involved, right? There had to be an exchange of something of value in order to get that person back. And the idea for the first thousand years in Christian history in the West, the idea was that Adam and Eve had bartered away humanity's freedom in exchange for a taste of that forbidden fruit. And as a result, Humans were under the control and the rule of Satan until God sent a ransom to bring us back. And this theory, this idea, this theme, it has biblical precedent that brought people to it. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in 1 Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends who knew the Jesus story as well as anybody, Peter says, it's not with, it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were ransomed or redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so there's all this ransom language going on in the scriptures to explain how this understanding in the first millennium in the Western church came to be. But then in the 11th century, the tide started to turn. And there were things going on in culture as, the, as governments were beginning to think about the rule of law and the development of the Magna Carta was coming in just a couple of decades. And there was a famous theologian named Anselm who took a look at atonement, this concept. He looked at a different facet of the story. He looked from a different angle. And he argued, there's no way, there's no possible way that Satan could have enough power over God to essentially hold God hostage until God did Satan's will, right? Like that couldn't happen. God's too powerful for that. Satan could not have ever been in a position to demand anything from God. And so Anselm argued, humans don't need to be freed from Satan. Humans need to be freed from themselves and from their own sinfulness. In Anselm's understanding, human sin was an affront and an offense to God, so offensive that God had to turn away. God had to turn his face away from human sin and that a price had to be paid, blood had to be spilled in order for God to turn his face back towards humanity. Anselm was a man of his time, and he was thinking in terms of eternal laws of justice and righteousness. And in his mind, even God was bound by immutable laws that must be satisfied, laws like justice. And so in Anselm's understanding, God made this decision that he would substitute himself. In Anselm's vision, God was the judge sitting up on the bench on high and casting down a sentence and a verdict of guilty and a sentence of, a death, of, of death for the defendant. And then as soon as that happened, the judge himself walks down from the bench and decides to take the place of the defendant and take on that punishment. And ever since Anselm wrote that in 1098, almost a thousand years ago, his atonement explanation has loomed large in churches and in the theology of the Western world. 
There have been other theologians who have taken his writing and they've worked with it and they've added to it and they've used it to help explain and flesh out the vision, but that's largely shaped the conversation for a thousand years. In fact, I bet it sounds familiar to you. I'll bet that the ideas of God being so offended by sin but also willing to suffer its consequences in our place, that's a theological picture you've heard before. It's a theological picture that shows up in some of our favorite songs and in lots of our scriptures, especially if you deep dive into the book of Romans. There have been a lot of people in the last thousand years who have made a conversion decision because they were told that Romans says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In fact, some of you may remember that conviction playing a big part in your decision to become a Christian. But as common as that understanding is, as common as that theme of atonement is in our collective understanding, I want to tell you this morning that that's just one way to look at what Jesus did on the cross. It's just one facet of the atonement. And the truth is that Anselm's writing and all of the thinking that was attached to it later on happened in Western cultures that were obsessed with matters of guilt and innocence. All of these facets, all of these themes, they're metaphors for atonement. And metaphors have a context and when we try to retrofit a new metaphor onto an old story of Scripture, the fit is never really perfect. But this morning, I want to invite you into an expansion of your spiritual imagination. I want to invite you to consider a way of looking at atonement that we can only learn when we listen to the voices of brothers and sisters who are not from North America and Western Europe. Because there are parts of the world, there are parts of our world where culturally the ideas of guilt and innocence just don't matter much. There are parts of our world where the concepts of being labeled as guilty, a guilty party or the innocent party, that doesn't carry much weight. I'm talking about parts of the eastern and southern hemispheres primarily, parts of the world where instead of guilt and innocence, they think in terms of shame and honor, places where they think in terms of power and fear. There are parts of the world like this where the atonement theme that looms large for them got its roots way back in the very first chapter of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1 in that poetic account of the creation. Genesis chapter 1 describes this cosmic drama of creation that culminated in the formation of humans. And in that account, in Genesis 1, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have a conversation with one another. And they say, let us make mankind or humankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then in the next verse it says, so God did just that. 
God, the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, the text says. And this is one of the core beliefs of our faith, that we are created in the image of God. This is an important part, an important tenet of our convictions that we are made to be in community with God. I mean, from the very beginning, God designed us for relationship. God created us for community. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, let's make another one like us to be in community with us, not just in community with other humans. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were inviting humanity into this relationship that already existed. From the very beginning, God's intention has been to be connected to his human creations. But then if you read through the biblical narrative, if you read through the Old Testament stories, if you read about the Tower of Babel and you read about Cain and Abel and you read about the flood, if you read, read about Lot and, and, all, and the, the problems that he experienced, if you read about Joseph, if you read about the exodus and the slavery in Egypt, if you read about the problems that the divided, I mean the, the kingdom and then the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah had, if you read about all of those stories, what you find is that God was constantly reaching for them and they were looking at God and saying thanks but no thanks and it tells a different story it tells a different atonement story because in this story God is always facing his people God always is pursuing his people and so one way to look at what Jesus did not only on the cross, but in his entire incarnation, his entire life. One way to look at that is to picture God advancing toward his people in the humblest, most non-threatening way possible. God shows up as a baby, fenceless, harmless, needy, and that baby grows up and it's fully God and fully human at the same time, but that baby continues to approach humans with humility Jesus never forced his way on anybody. Jesus never forced his teaching, didn't force his love on anybody. Jesus didn't demand that anybody accept what he had to say. He just led by example. He led by the way that he lived. And when people responded to him with suspicion, with pe when people responded to him with derision, when people responded with doubt, and ultimately when people responded with violence, Jesus didn't force himself on anybody. He didn't fight back. He just showed us how to live the way we were designed to live. And because he lived out that example so faithfully, even death couldn't stop him from continuing to love his people. And so decades after the crucifixion, Jesus' closest friend, Peter, would describe the reality this way. He says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And you're hearing echoes there about being made in the image of God, right? God's divine power has given us everything we need to live the way we were designed to live for a godly life. And he's given that to us through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And then here's the last verse we'll read together this morning. 
He says, through these, through our knowledge of him, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through those promises, you can, we may participate in the divine nature. He says, God is restoring what we lost when we walked away. God is making it possible for us to live into that divine nature that we were given at our creation, even though we walked away from it and said we didn't want it. God has given us these great and precious promises so that through those promises we can participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world that's caused by evil desires. This is a restoration project. It's a project of God constantly looking at his broken children, his distant children, and asking, what could I do next to restore what's missing, to restore what walked away? And the thing about restoration is we don't know what we're doing, do we? I don't know how many restoration projects you've tried to be a part of. Sometimes they end up being a lot bigger, more than you can, you know, bite off more than you can chew kind of situation. There was a good, episode, a good uh, example of this that happened in 2012 in a little small town church in Spain, in a little city called Borgia. And in, in this, little, this little town, it's a small place, but they have this, it's kind, it's kind of a sanctuary. And, and pilgrims who are on spiritual pilgrimage will make a stop there and they'll sit in the chapel and they'll pray. And a hundred years ago, there was an artist that spent time praying there, and he was so thankful for what he experienced in that chapel, he decided he would paint a, a fresco, a mural on the wall of Jesus. In fact, I have a picture of the original that he painted back in 1930. And he painted this beautiful piece of art just directly on the, on the front wall on a column near the side of the, uh, the front of the sanctuary. And as the years went by, travelers, pilgrims would come by and they would be inspired by this reflective, contemplative vision, image of Jesus. But over time, the paint started to peel and flake and some of the stucco started to fall off. And so before too much longer, they, they started to notice that the, the image was starting to really look decayed. And in 2012, there was a lady who cared deeply about this chapel, this sanctuary, and she asked the local priest if she could take a turn, to, you know, try her hand at trying to restore this piece of art. And she brought her paint, and she, she did it with full knowledge of everybody that was involved, but after she got done working on it, the painting went from this to this. <clears throat> the media called it Potato Jesus. It was a laughing stock. And her feelings were hurt and people were disappointed, people were sad, people were worried that this was going to become such a big problem that they were literally just going to be a laughing stock with everybody that ever saw it. But it was amazing the story of restoration that happened here because this little bitty town that usually sees 3,000 visitors a year 
The next year, they had 16,000 visitors that came through the chapel. People that started making donations to the ministry of the chapel, and those donations were used to provide housing for the elderly in the little town of Borgia. And this lady that did the painting, Mrs. Jimenez, she said, I wasn't finished. <laughs> she said, I still had more work to do. I think it was going to turn out okay if I hadn't gone away. <laughs> but they stopped her work where they did, and it turned out to be a great blessing to the town because of how many people discovered the chapel in Borgia. And what's amazing is that sometimes our attempts at restoration can end up making things worse. Sometimes our attempts at fixing what's broken, our attempts at mending what has been separated, sometimes our attempts at that end up making things worse. And when we try to fix the trail of destruction and pain and, and damage that we've, done, we've left in our wake, we cause more problems. With us, restoration is impossible. But with God, restoration is the ultimate goal. This story, this cross story, this cruc crucifixion story is a love story. If you turn it and look at it from the right angle, if you look at the right facet of this story, you see that this story is a story of God's constant pursuit, God's constant chasing, God's limitless love to care for those who frequently turn their backs on him. And so you could say, if you look at the aspect of the atonement, if you consider the right facet, you could say that on the cross, Jesus was accomplishing a restoration that we just simply couldn't accomplish on our own. And the reason this matters, the reason it's important for us to talk about this it's because you have likely already got an atonement theme in mind that helped bring you to the point where you are. It helped you understand some of the realities and some of the comprehension you have about God. And maybe for many of you, it was a journey down what we used to call the Romans road, where you learned about how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life and so you learned and you're thankful for those beautiful steps that helped you along the way but there are some people in our world because of their cultural background some people in our world because of their relational experiences there's some people in our world for whom the atonement theory, the atonement theme that makes sense to you is not going to connect with them. You got to know, some of you do know, that when you start talking about a heavenly father who turns away from his children, that there are some people whose experience with their earthly father makes it where they just can't receive that, right? You gotta know that when you talk to somebody who comes from a, an honor-shame culture like Japan or a power-fear culture like maybe Indonesia, you gotta know that when you try to tell them the story of Jesus, 
using guilt and innocence language and metaphors, it just may never click for them the way it did for you. It's not because there's something wrong. It's because their background and their understanding comes from a totally different place. Their worldview comes from a totally different place. And so as we wrap up this morning, I wanna tell you in just a few words why we're gonna take this journey for the next few weeks, learning about different facets of atonement. And the main reason, one of the, one of the main reasons is because what you think about the crucifixion shapes what you think about God. What you understand about what was happening at the cross shapes what you understand about the character and the purposes of God. And I want you to remember it's a love story. I want you to remember that it's always been a love story. And so that's part of why we're gonna talk about this for the next few weeks. But I also want you to understand that every explanation of the atonement, every facet of this diamond is a metaphor. And if we take a metaphor too far, if we misunderstand or misapply a metaphor, we can end up doing spiritual harm. We can make the road harder for people to understand the truth we're trying to share. And then maybe the most important reason, the most important reason we gotta talk about this is because we live in a global culture. We live in a culture where there are hundreds of languages spoken here in our community, in our county, in our cities. And it's incumbent on us, it's important, it's necessary for us as missionaries to our culture to learn how to present the crucifixion as good news. I gotta tell you, I'm looking around here and I'd like to see more people from Japan. I'd like to see more people from Indonesia become a part of our church family. And I could list a whole lot of other countries. I'm not just singling out those two. But by way of example, I'm trying to say, we've got a lot of people in here who understand atonement from a guilt-innocence perspective, but not very many who have come to understand it through the lens of honor and shame, power and fear. And yet I walk out the doors of this place and go out into our community, and I see a lot of people who come from those parts of the world and I think, I, I, want them, I want them to be a part of our community. I want them to know the truth that we know. And so we gotta learn these stories so that we can be better missionaries to our community. We have to listen to the entire council of the New Testament writers. We have to listen to all the metaphors and all of the images and all the stories and the sermons and the songs and the poems. We have to pay attention to all of the different ways that the scriptures are telling us to look at what happened on the cross. And what we're gonna find is that this story has always been bigger than we thought it was. This story has always been better than we thought it was. And this story from beginning to end and through every chapter in between has always been a story about the love of God for you. And so I wanna invite you for the next few weeks as we build up to Easter, I wanna invite you to be here to take this journey with us so that you can be not only somebody who has a more fully formed and f more appreciative understanding of God for yourself, but somebody who can understand God better for the sake of your neighbors, for the sake of your children, for the sake of your coworkers, for the sake of the foreigner and the stranger. Be here with us so that we can learn to represent God in the best way possible.
and to remind everybody we know that it's a story of love.